So after two millennia, 2,000 years, people, they're still asking, who is Jesus? And you might even be asking that after that little caveat. Who is Jesus? Why lift him up in every sermon? Uh, and that's why we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark. We're looking for that answer, and we don't just want any answer. We want to hear Jesus on his own terms. And that's why we're in the Gospel of Mark. Mark presents us the real Jesus, what he really did, what he really said. And now, from the beginning of Mark all the way through the end, we see a theme emerging in Jesus' life. He has an uncommon authority. And this is especially apparent in our passage today, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. You can't miss that Jesus has an uncommon authority in this passage. And so far in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus' authority extend over all sorts of things, the spiritual realm. You know, he can cast out demons. He frees tormented souls. We've seen his authority extend over our physicality. He can mend broken bodies. But now we see that Jesus' authority extends over creation itself. He can bridle storms. And that seems to be the headline news of this passage. Jesus can calm storms. But it's not. It's remarkable, but it's not the point of this passage. This passage is really about faith or a lack thereof. In a life-threatening situation, the disciples' fear overshadows their faith. And what happened? Was their faith just tossed overboard? No, that, what's actually the issue is that the faith was never present in the boat to begin with. And it's a passage then that forces us, uh, forces us, us, I don't know what that was, forces us to ask the question with the disciples, who is Jesus? Because that's the question they begin asking. Who is Jesus? It's the first time it's been explicitly asked by the disciples in Mark's gospel. And it, it requires us to grapple with the fact that answering that question requires faith. So that's the big idea we're going to look at this morning. Who is Jesus and what faith is required to find the answer? So open your Bibles up with me to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. It's on page 716 of the Bible that you're handed in walking in. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, hanging out with me, apparently, uh, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? For those of you who are guests, my last name is Stern. It was a terrible joke. Uh, <laughs> the sun, it's, it's setting. You know, the, the, the waters are calm on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, you can see orange hues. You know, it's beautiful. It's peaceful. And the disciples set off with Jesus in a boat. And Mark, he situates us. He says, on the same day, on that day. Which day? It's the same day where earlier in the day, Jesus was teaching um, about the kingdom of God in parables. We've looked at this in the past two weeks. The parable of the sower, the uh, lamp under the ba basket, the seeds growing, the mustard seed. And Mark, he... He emphasizes that this is on the same day because these parables are supposed to be kept in our, in our minds. And what does he want us to remember about the parables? I want to keep it really simple. Uh, if you need a recap, those sermons are online. We can see, but not perceive. We can hear, but not understand. 
When it comes to the kingdom of God, we can see but not see. We can hear but not hear. And we all are, by default, not good soil, to use the parable's terms. It's only with the tools of faith and repentance that we can open ourselves up to this kingdom that seems at first small, but will grow and grow and grow and is meant to be seen by the world. And so after a day of teaching about faith in the kingdom of God, Jesus says to the disciples, let us go across to the other side. So the disciples, they set sail, they go and across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and it's a journey that they've probably taken countless times in their lives. And they know the sea well. It can be serene, it can be peaceful, but not always. The Sea of Galilee, it's uh, nearly 700 feet below sea level. And I've had the privilege of actually visiting the Sea of Galilee, and it is stunning. It's beautiful. This is a, a picture of it. It's gorgeous. You'd think you're in England or somewhere. Uh, I didn't even think there'd be greenery in Israel. I so uneducated, but, uh, you know, 30 miles to the northeast is Mount Hermon, and uh, it rises 9,200 feet above sea level. So you have this huge uh, gap between sea level and this mountain, and, and for those of you who understand this sort of thing, the interchange between uh, the upper air from Mount Hermon and the warm air rising from the Sea of Galilee can produce crazy weather conditions, and so the lake is famed for having wild windstorms out of nowhere because of the conditions. Uh, in other words, windstorms go with the Sea of Galilee like snowstorms with Edmonton, rain with Vancouver, or grasshopper clouds with Saskatchewan. Uh, they're not uncommon. In fact, they're to be expected. And uh, Davey liked that joke. And the <laughs> disciples know this. The disciples, they know this. The journey can be peaceful or it can be chaotic. You never know what you're going to get. And this time around, they're dealt chaos. Mark writes in verse 37, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Let's remember, a handful of these guys are seasoned fishermen. They know how to handle this sort of situation. And yet the wind which arose on that day, it was beyond their ability. They couldn't handle it. It was a great windstorm. One scholar says you could actually translate this as a hurricane. They're beginning to go under. They're beginning to be overcome. And their survival instincts kick into high gear. Fear is in their hearts. It's beating in their throats. And hope disappears uh, as all they can see on the horizon is crashing waves. Have you ever been in trouble in the water? Do you know that fear? It's terrifying. A few years ago, my family and I uh, went to Salt Spring Island, and it's become a family tradition that we do on the Canada Day weekend because Julia's born on Canada Day. You're welcome, Canada. And uh, we rough it out in cabins for the, the long weekend, which is my style of camping. And on this trip, at, at the time, my oldest nephew was 12. His name's Anthony. And he loved playing on the dock. And one morning, he got up and he took a rowboat out. Uh, from the dock, but rather than return it to the dock like a, a civilized individual, he just dropped it off on the beach and, and got out. And then a little while later, I look out and he's on a paddleboard and he's paddling a while around and he leaves the paddleboard on the floating dock out in the middle of the lake and then swims back. And a few minutes later, he, he takes out a pedal boat, you know, like the ones that you do with your feet, and he's just paddling around and guess where he parked that one? on the beach. And you're just thinking, like, what is this kid doing? And so eventually, you know, dinner's coming and we're saying, Tony, it's time uh, to put all of these things back. So Anthony decided it would be a good idea 
to take the pedal boat with the rowboat attached to it by a rope. Why this was a good idea, uh, I don't know. But, you know, he's, he starts pedaling out to the floating dock where I'm, presumably he's going to pick up the paddle boat. But the thing that he didn't account for in his plan was a change in weather. And out of nowhere, the, the wind picked up with unusual strength. And so he's pedaling away, but he's got the weight of a heavier rowboat pulling him. And so the wind is starting to drift him to the south end of the lake. And he's getting scared. And we're kind of watching from the beach laughing because it's kind of funny at first. Uh, but, you know, the water, it gets more choppy. And so like a brave uncle, I decide to go out and help him. But the question is, how? How do you help this circus of a situation? And so the only solution of, is to kayak out there, of course. And so I <laughs> kayak out to the middle of the lake where he's drifting further and further away. Uh, and I realized I hadn't really thought through, how am I going to get out of the kayak? Uh, and so I wedged the kayak between the rowboat and the pedal boat and uh, convinced Tony not to push me in the water. And I got into the rowboat and I helped him get into the rowboat. And I then remembered that I'm terrible in rowboats. And so I'm trying to like get this thing going and we're just drifting further away. The wind's getting worse. Uh, the paddle board goes past us and we're like, okay, maybe he was right. Let's get back in the pedal boat. And so we get in the pedal boat, but the problem is I'm too heavy. And so the pedal boat starts sinking and water's coming in and we're freaking out. I'm like, help me Jesus, you know, and, 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 that, and Tony's laughing and I'm like, Tony, get in, back in the rowboat. And so we're I'm standing on the back of the pedal boat, scooping out water with the kayak paddle, uh, and then we get back in the rowboat. Now, at this point, I got to be honest, I resented my nephew. I was ready to disown him, throw him in the water, call it even, and uh, head back to the boat, but I decided to keep helping him. And so what I did is I said, get in the pedal boat, let's get the water out, and we'll distach it, and you just go back to the, the shore. And so he managed to get back to the shore, and so I rowed, uh, you know, as best as I could uh, with the wind and I, I parked at a private dock and then I got in the kayak and went back to land. And so the first thing Tony says to me when we get back to land was, that was really scary. And I said, you think? Uh, <laughs> and you know, our lives, they weren't terribly at risk. You know, we only had a small taste of the wind. I mean, we're in Salt Spring Island. But it was scary. And in the moment, all I could think about was survival. And I was wearing a life jacket. Like, I'm sure I would have been fine if I went overboard, but it was scary. Now, imagine that, except in a real life-threatening, hurricane-like situation where you don't have life jackets. There's nothing comical about what's happening in Mark's gospel. There's a boat full of grown men freaking out, experienced fishermen freaking out, overcome in their fight against nature. And all of this is going on, and Mark writes in verse 38, Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. You know, to the disciples, Jesus was their Anthony. He's the one who said they should go out, and now he's just sleeping. They're on the brink of being extinguished. Danger is imminent, and he's just sleeping. And Mark records this curious detail, asleep on the cushion. You know, whoever recalled this story to Mark, telling him about what happened, they said, you've got to keep this detail in. He was sleeping on a cushion. A cushion. So in a panic, they wake Jesus up. Verse 38, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Teacher, it's an odd way to address him. Out of all the ways they could address Jesus, rabbi, lord, master, they address him here as teacher. What's a teacher going to do? Make this into an object lesson? Like, this is how you die. Like, what is he going to do? What does a teacher do? 
All the intellect in the world won't change what's happening. You know, what they really need is a savior. What they really need is someone who can rescue them from this imminent death. But they don't see Jesus as savior yet. Even though that's exactly who they need him to be. But there is a glimmer of hope in their fear. They say, teacher, like you can do something about this, right? Like save us. You know, they want to believe that the teachings of Jesus that they heard earlier in the day, they're not just theoretical, but they make a difference here. Can the word of God come into this situation of death and bring life? And look at verse 39. Jesus awoke, he rebuked the wind and said, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Jesus wakes up, perhaps a little sleepy, peace, be still. A great windstorm and now a great calm. Perhaps we should even hear Jesus saying, Shalom, shalom, be still. It's the Jewish world for peace, but it's more than that. It's, it's wholeness. He's saying, creation, reorder yourself around me in my word. Jesus does something amazing. He does a miracle. But the disciples are not off the hook. He turns to them and he asks them in verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? The word for afraid here could actually be translated cowardly. Why are you acting like cowards? Have you no faith? Their fear was great. It's clouding their judgment. Their fear had taken control of the situation. All they could see was the storm. They didn't even think about God. Their eyes were on the waves. And so Jesus rightly asks them, where is your faith? Their faith wasn't overboard. It wasn't there to begin with. They're not yet good soil. Have you no faith? What a difficult question to hear. I mean, initially it puts everyone on the defensive. If I was in that boat, I'd be like, Jesus, like, I was afraid. Like, I'm about to die. What is faith going to do for me? Doesn't your heart ask that? Have you no faith? If you think, what's faith going to do for me in a life and death situation? It shows. You don't quite understand what faith is yet. We'll get to that. But they have no words in response. No defense. Look at verse 41. Mark simply says, they were filled with great fear. Now, in the Greek, uh, this gets lost in English a little bit. I don't like doing this, but it's important. Uh, the fear they experienced before the miracle, this was like just gut survival instinct fear, uh, coward, cowardly-like fear even. But the fear after the miracle, it's a different word, it's a different type of fear. It literally means incomprehensible surprise or shock. It's a fear that grips to the bones and makes reality temporarily incomprehensible. Do you know this sort of fear? When I was living in Florida, I was introduced to all sorts of fears. Uh, <laughs> three in particular came to mind during this sermon, one greater than the rest. Uh, the first, when I discovered upon moving there that you have to assume in every body of water in Florida that there's an alligator. I'm not even kidding. Like, there's, if you're swimming in a lake, there is an alligator swimming with you. That's terrifying. Like, why would you ever swim, ever, period? And, and they'll be like, ah, oh, they just eat dogs. That's terrifying. That, I don't want an alligator eating anything around me. And so I'm, 
I discover this reality, though, when I'm kayaking in the Wakaiva River and there's alligators on either side. I'm like, where are you guys taking me? And I, I'm not even kidding. I kayaked directly in, because I'm terrible at, in the water, directly into a nest of baby alligators. First type of fear. Help me, Jesus, fear. Second fear in Florida was the first time I heard a tornado warning sign on the TV. Now, I'm prepared for earthquakes. I grew up on the West Coast. Tornadoes? Like, it, it, the scary sound, tornado warning. And, and, and I'm looking at my friends like, did you hear that? They're like, ah, oh, it's nothing. I'm like, I'm going in the bathtub in the bathroom, and you guys can die in the tornado. Uh, again, first type of, of fear. Amen from Casey over there. But my third brush with fear in Florida uh, was Tropical Storm Faye in 2008. And so Julia and I, uh, we just not even married a year at that point, and we're sitting in our living room, and all of a sudden we hear this loud boom, you know, followed by a crack, like the sound of a baseball bat, except like swung by a giant. And then we heard this crashing like noise getting louder and louder and louder until it collided with our house and the whole house shook and it sounded like a train had derailed and hit our home. And we tried to look out the window, but all we saw were branches and leaves. And I remember we couldn't comprehend what was happening and Julia was shaking and she needed me to hold her. And we just looked at each other and we we're like, what on earth just happened? Well, a tree fell on our house. This is an actual picture of it. The house is in there somewhere. Uh, we were in the house when the tree fell on it, and it fell on the kitchen and crushed through the roof and into the kitchen, and we were lucky not to be hurt. Second type of fear. First type, yes, but second type. We initially couldn't comprehend the reality where things are changing around us, noises, we can't make sense of it, incomprehensible fear. You see, initially during the storm, the disciples, they were afraid. Alligator, tornado, but their second fear was shock, shock of what they just witnessed. They're stunned. Reality doesn't make sense. Uh, they're left asking the only question you could ask after a situation like this. Who is this? Who is this? Who is this man sitting in this boat with us? Who is this man who at his word, the, the, the waves and the sea obey him? Who is this? Nobody's capable of doing this. And they're finally asking the right question. It may have required chaos. It may have required them coming to the brink of death, but now they're finally asking, who is this that can calm storms? And this question is at the center of what it means to follow Jesus. If these guys are going to be his apostles, if they're going to be sent out on his behalf, they have to be able to answer this. Which should make all of us ask, who is Jesus? Who is he? Like the disciples, we can stop short of answering this in all sorts of ways. We can say, Jesus, he was a good moral teacher. It's true. The disciples thought so too. They call him teacher. And a lot of what Jesus has taught has lasted for thousands of years and has been infused into our culture. But that's only one facet of who Jesus is. We can't explain the story if he's only a teacher. I know a lot of great teachers, but they're not the people I'd want on a ship with me. You know, like maybe a PE teacher, but English teachers stay on shore. Write a poem about it. Uh, <laughs> Shannon. <laughs> uh, but we, we see teacher was not a satisfactory answer for the disciples. They called him teacher, but what is a teacher going to do? 
And that's why they start asking, who is this? Who is this? Now, if he was just a teacher, this story is a total farce. It's made up. It didn't happen. It's just an exaggeration. And that's what people still say to this day. This is made up. This is an exaggeration of the disciples' minds. Even if something like that happened, they're embellishing, or it didn't happen altogether, and it's just a fable. Well, why would you say that? Well, people can't calm storms. It's true. Uh, and then we say, therefore, it didn't happen. And that's the gist of the logic. Uh, the problem is that with miracles, they're technically anomalies. They can't be measured uh, by the scientific method because they're not repeatable. They're a one-off anomaly. And the problem, if we're being honest, simply put, is we just don't know. We can't definitively say that miracles have never happened because we haven't observed every single moment in the cosmos. We just don't know, and our knowledge of the universe is constantly changing, that we barely even know what the universe is right now. We might know more than we did 100 years ago, but we certainly more, know less than what we'll know in 100 years from now. We simply don't know if miracles happen. The scriptures say they do. But, putting that aside, because it's a faith statement, miracles don't happen because they can't. Uh, what is this what, what's happening in this passage that would lead us to conclude it's an exaggeration? What do the disciples gain by highlighting their cowardice or their hardness of their hearts? How, what do they gain by highlighting that they're anti-heroes? Right? That they didn't get it. That there's no resolve of them getting it at the end of the boat. No epiphany. This is just brutally honest about who they are. It's the same issue at play. You can't know it's an exaggeration. You can't prove it, but you believe that it's an exaggeration as if that's true. Now, you could just suspend belief and you could say, I simply can't know one way or the other. Now, I commend you, that is intellectually more honest. But Jesus himself says, I came into the world to make myself known. And he answers the question, who am I, over and over again in the scriptures. So the question is, are you willing to listen? You see, the question is bigger than who is Jesus. The question is, are you really willing to listen? Because we all have beliefs that we use to justify not listening. And this is why we should be hearing the parable of the sower in the backdrop of this picture. We see, but we don't perceive. We hear, but we don't understand. That's the issue, and that's why the emphasis lands on still. He says, have you still no faith. After all I've said and shown you, after what you've witnessed, have you still no faith? Because how we answer the question is a matter of faith. Either faith in our explanation or faith in our own presuppositions or faith in what we think we can or can't know or faith in who Jesus claims to be. And who is he claiming to be? See, this passage, he doesn't answer explicitly. He demonstrates who he is far more powerful. He's someone of calming the storm, the waves, by his word. Who can do this but God? You go back to the creation narrative, it, it's God and God alone who speaks and the watery world becomes ordered. Or think about Psalm 107, God commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. You see, Jesus does things that only God is capable of doing. And Mark wants us to be sure of this, that God has made a personal appearance in the person of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God. Now, this might be a hard answer for many of us to digest. 
But if it's any consolation, Mark shows us that humanity is real slow at getting this right. Satan knows who Jesus is before we do in the narrative. Demons know who Jesus is before we do in the narrative. And when someone in the gospel finally proclaims Jesus is the Son of God, it's not even one of the disciples. It's a Roman centurion, a Gentile, someone who opposed the Jesus movement. But the disciples and apostles are starting to ask the right question, and in time they'll uncover the right answer. And I want you to know this gives us permission. Permission to be on a journey and to learn and to struggle to find the answer. Faith, it's not always an easy journey. And in the disciples' instance, it took time to come to a real faith. They were a work in progress. But they were seeking the answer to their question. And that's the question I have for you if you're still asking this question. Who is Jesus? Are you really asking? Or are you just asking for the sake of asking? Are you actually seeking to find an answer? Do you actually see it as important? Because if Christianity is true, it changes everything. If it's not true, it's of no importance. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. While this passage, though, gives us permission to be on a journey, it's also really firm. The only faith that ultimately counts is faith in Jesus as the Son of God. If we stop short of that answer, Jesus like he did to the disciples, will ask us, where is your faith? If your faith is in an abstract, nameless deity who's sort of involved in the universe, Jesus will ultimately ask you, where is your faith? If we say you're just a teacher, Jesus, he'll ask you, where is your faith? If we say you're just an exaggeration, Jesus, one day we will be held to account and he will ask us, where is your faith? You can never even spend time seeking him and trying to follow him, but never definitively answer the question. And he's going to ask you, where is your faith? Because you put it in something. You put it in something. And he's looking for us to answer the question with faith, to claim, yes, you are the son of God. You truly are who you claim to be. You really did do what the scriptures account that you did. But I also want to take note that it's easy to spout off the right answer but not really care. You can say Jesus is the Son of God. You can quote the scriptures but not truly have faith in the answer. Has the reality even once evoked fear in your life? Not the basic survival instinct fear, but the second fear, incomprehensible shock and surprise. Have you ever been stunned by the gospel? In your pursuit of Jesus and your experiences with him, have you ever had times where you've been blown away by who he is? Has your entire worldview ever crumbled at his feet? Has life ever stopped making sense as you previously knew it? Just once. And has your faith developed in response to this sort of fear? The way you, how would you know, the way uh, you live day in and day out, you might not be perfect, but you're trying. You're aiming for a 24-7 faithfulness. Or do you just store this idea of Jesus like a novelty on a shelf? Jesus, he's looking for a faith that leads to faithfulness, a faith that leads to following, because it's a faith that has gripped the heart. 
And so the question for us then is, how does faith go from just our minds but into the very core of who we are, into our hearts and our affections and our actions? We see explicitly in this passage that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of the storm, but he's also the Lord with us in the storm. Jesus sleeps with his head on a cushion in the boat while the disciples fret and are afraid and are worried about saving their lives. The storm is all they can see, and so they cry out, don't you care? We're perishing. Preserving their lives is all that matters. But their eyes aren't set on the greater storm brewing on the horizon. The great storm that they face can't even be compared. In the near future, when that storm is about to come, the disciples will be the ones sleeping. Sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane while Jesus is preparing to face that storm, a storm that matters infinitely more. He'll be swallowed up by the billows of suffering. He'll be overcome by the waves of death. And on the cross, he faces a storm that would have consumed all of us. And there he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he goes under the waves. He's the one who's Lord of all. Lord of the storm, and yet he goes to death for us. You see, the disciples, they're panicking that the only one in the boat is doing nothing to save them. But that's because they don't yet see that he will do everything to save them. He will do everything to bring them out of death into life. It's just not happening on that boat. And he even still saved them on that boat. The disciples are asking, do you not care that we're perishing? Jesus cares. He cares. He cares more than they can fathom. He cares more than we can fathom. You know, sometimes the storms we face in our lives, whatever they may be, they make us wonder, does God care? And I don't want to belittle the things that we go through because sometimes they're serious. And this passage, it, it assures us Jesus cares. He's with you even there. Even when the troubles that we're facing seem to be overcoming our lives. But if we start wondering if God cares, we won't know by looking to the storm. We won't know by just our own resolve. We look to the cross there we see the definitive answer, God cares. He has not abandoned you to the storm. God's love for us, his son's love for us and care for us led him to the cross and there Jesus calmed the storms of sin and death, suffering and evil and oppression and injustice, all of these storms that came together to form a perfect storm that would consume humanity. He calmed that great storm with his death. And therefore, he offers us a great calm. Because in him, nothing can overcome us. Nothing can separate us from him. Nothing can consume us, not even death, because he promises us life. And the one who with his word can come sees if he says, you will have life after death and your sins are forgiven. It's true. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This reality, if you place your faith in it, it will be incomprehensible. At times, it will stun you. At times, it'll cause the way you used to see the world to seem to be falling apart, and you won't really be sure how to pick it back together. It doesn't matter. You don't need to. All you need to do is cast your eyes upon this 
Lord of the storm and the one who is also the Lord with us in the storm. Is your faith in Jesus, the Son of God, or is it in something else?